This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am flattered they elevated me to having a JD, which is a law degree, but I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. This is All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. This is Jordan Rich reminding you to all rise. We've got a great podcast for you today. Jordan, can you tell us what it's all about? You bet, Diane. Our guest today is attorney Aviva Jerusalem, defending clients since 1986. She's at various times handled real estate, bankruptcy, family law, but today we talk about her work as a criminal attorney, and Diane and Aviva are good pals, having worked together on many, many cases. So take it away, Diane. Hi, Aviva. Hi, Diane. I'm so excited to see you. I miss you. Well, I miss you too, but I'm so glad that you decided to come on to my podcast, All Rise with Diane Godfrey. I'm Diane Godfrey, as you know. Aviva Jerusalem is an esteemed member of the Massachusetts Defense Bar, and I thought you would bring oodles of wisdom and information to the listeners. So I'm so excited you're here. When I worked in Superior Court for many years, I always knew who you were. I never remember actually meeting you, but I always knew you were there. And you were there a lot. Obviously, you must have had a lot of cases. But I remember that we really kind of bonded over a pair of nylons, as odd as that sounds. <laughs> no, that's, that's, you know, I'm telling you, it was a, a, a genius recommendation until it wasn't. But I, I was so grateful because, you know, listen, lawyers, they wear, you know, both pantsuits and other suits. And unfortunately, pre-COVID, we had to cover our legs with something. And the bane of my existence was nylon constantly tearing. And so it was a very excellent recommendation. You know, I had those nylons. The name of the company is Wolford. They're an Austrian company, and there are two locations around Boston. One is in Copley and one's in Chestnut Hill. Unfortunately, when I told you, you know, go there and because I just loved the place, the girl like wasn't even nice to you. She was not. She was not. She was not a good representative. And And I I know who she is. She knows me. We're friends. But... I can't believe she didn't treat you properly. No, you can't always control the face of the company. So So anyway, I have to ask, how long have you been practicing? Did you go to law school here in Boston? I went to undergrad um, in New York City, and, and then I went to law school in North Carolina. So I did not go, I did not have any connection with Boston initially at all until I was imported by my then future husband. You know, as the saying goes, everything happens for either love or money. It did. And I didn't even practice law initially because I started a company and I did that for about seven years. I just sort of dove into the law afterwards. I was already a lawyer, but I I took a little time off. You either go in the civil world of law or the criminal world. What got you into the criminal world of law? I had zero interest in criminal defense when I first went back to practicing law. I, I mean, not not because I had anything personally against it. I just, that's not how I set out to practice. But when I decided to sell my company and begin law, you know, practice law, I was sort of um, not hireable as it were, you know, um, unless I wanted to either work corporate law, 
which I didn't want to because I had a very young family at the time and I recognized the number of hours that would require. And so I had to sort of strike out on my own and hang my own shingle. Um, yeah. And, you know, work was very erratic until, uh, at least until the pandemic, used to teach group exercise classes, aerobics classes. And one of my students was a criminal defense attorney and said, this is really great. It's a lot of fun. It's great, wonderful work. And this is how you have to do it. So I said, oh, I'll give it a try. And then the rest was history. And I found out that I loved it. Well, that's great. But, you know, I've always wanted to ask you this, and I never thought in a courtroom setting it would be appropriate, but I can ask you now on Zoom. You know how they always say attorney-client privilege? I yeah. take that as a lay person to mean that your clients confide in you. From what I understand, they could say stuff to you like confess, and you are like, the vault, like like you, you take those secrets to the grave and you can ethically hold them inside of you till the day you die. I think that's like the coolest freaking thing I've ever heard. A very awesome um, and honorable responsibility. And I take it, um, you know, I take it very, very seriously. Client could release me from that requirement. And sometimes they do. Sometimes they want to bring in other people in the inner circle. But yes, it's a, it's a, um, it, it's, it's, it's foundational for the work that we do. Somebody could say to you, I'm on trial for murder and I plead not guilty, but you know what, Aviva, FYI, I did kill him. Like, how does that work? That's it. My lips are sealed. So, um, ah. I have a duty to honor, you know, those communications. So when you have a client, I always wondered this too. We call them codies and people outside the business say, what the heck is a Cody? Naturally, it's a co-defendant. There might be two or three people tried at the same for something that goes, you know, with the murder. How do you decide what avenue to go down? Because naturally your adversary is the Commonwealth who's prosecuting, but I don't understand. All of a sudden your co-defendant could be your adversary, right? Are you at odds with them too? Sometimes. I mean, you know, first of all, when I um, develop a strategy for a case and there's a co-defendant or several co-defendants, first of all, I have to figure out if there's a legal mechanism to um, separate or sever those cases. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. You know, if there are several defendants that are being tried together in the case, then sometimes we have a, a mutual cause, a mutual defense, and we can engage in a strategic defense. And sometimes we divide up the work. Um, if that suits us, sometimes we're antagonistic towards each other. And, you know, I'll be pointing the finger at the other client, the, the other defendant, and they'll be pointing the finger at my client. And, you know, and then the jury has to decide um, what they believe unanimously. So when you're defending someone, a lot of times they're incarcerated waiting for the trial to go forward. You had to go to the jail. And and how hard is it to do prep for a trial? People don't understand what goes into the backstory before it gets ready, that it's in a posture to be tried. A ton of time goes in. How many hours do you think you put in? I am working, you know, literally sometimes 14, 16 hours you know, the few weeks before the trial, because especially in a murder case, for example, there are so many moving parts to that. Um, And that, of course, includes visits to a jail or a prison. If my client's being held as a pretrial detainee, it's it definitely takes up a lot of time. 
and it makes it much, much more challenging. Jails have all sorts of rules about getting permission if I have to bring in my computer. Um, and so it it is absolutely much more of a strain. Um, but, you know, we do what we have to do. In a murder case, for example, it's you can always gar- almost guarantee that you'll be basically prepping your client um, inside. Are they allowed email access just to you for legal purposes while in jail waiting to be tried. I always wondered that. Wouldn't it make it exponentially like easier if you guys could at least go back and forth with that kind of stuff? It would be fabulous. And if the if we, we only learned one thing about the pandemic is that we learned that, yes, House of Corrections have um, virtual meeting capabilities and they should, going forward, continue to allow us to use that because, you know, for example, if I have a client who's held in Plymouth House Corrections waiting trial, um, that's a huge drain on my time to go visit, wait, whereas I can essentially do some type of virtual meeting via Zoom or this new program called Jurislinks, and it would make a huge difference. You know, and there's also just a, a cost to going to see a client. And I don't mean a financial cost, I mean just a time cost to drive to the location, to sometimes find parking, then to be processed, um, and then to go into the waiting room for the, the my client to be brought into the waiting room. I, it's it's a long process. And you know we could really cut down on the cost of time, the cost to the client, or if it's an indigent client, the cost to the, the state for representation. Um, I'm hoping that if once we get out of the pandemic and we can go back to seeing our clients that the houses of correction employ this as an alternative, because it would be wonderful. Yeah. You know, when I'm in court, a lot of times I see the frustration of defendants and I'll look at the judge and unfairly they'll say, I never get to see my attorney. I can't call him. I can't call her. It's not that the, the member of the bar isn't doing what they should do. It's just that they're sitting there idle and they're frustrated because of what you just said. So you'd often think that their rights would be somehow compromised if they didn't have free reign to, you know, have a hand and go forward like they would like to in their defense. I absolutely agree, Diane. And I think it's a real frustration for clients, frankly, and lawyers that they they are limited, you know, just by scheduling, by capability to go see clients. I mean, clients feel frustrated because, of course, they want to be involved. They have a right to be involved. And frankly, the best defenses are the ones where there's, a, you know, an activist client who is engaged in his or her defense become essentially part of the defense team, whether or not they end up testifying. Another thing that we see all the time in court, in court, and I don't think a lot of lay people notice it, but how we had a nickel for every time a client wants to fire their lawyer. People that have four and five lawyers in one case, and it's just, it's amazing. The judge usually grants it. But it gets out of control. I mean, that's common. It's it's very common. I mean, I, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I used to call myself the closer because I was the <laughs> lawyer that judges would ask for assistance on a case when they were on the fourth or fifth lawyer. And I think some of it has to do with communication style. And that's not to say that I haven't been terminated for sure. I mean, at the end of the day, clients, you know, defendants have to be able to trust their lawyer and feel confident in the lawyer. And it's a personal relationship. It's like anything else. It's like a doctor or a therapist or there has to be a connection. And once that connection is broken or lost, it's almost impossible to get it back. Now, here's my big question I've been dying to ask you. Last time we spoke, you started to tell me 
that you were attacked by one of your clients. I was almost attacked by one of the witnesses. It was a very volatile case. It was a double homicide. And the I was cross-examining the witness and essentially questioning his integrity or his credibility. Um, and at some point he lost it and he jumped over the witness stand and he ran over to attack me. And he was tackled by multiple court officers and then tried to do it again. So it was, wow. it was, um, yeah, it was a moment. It was, you know, momentarily frightening for sure. Was that in Suffolk Superior? It was in Suffolk Superior. Yeah. Wow. Because we've had instances of lawyers being one in particular. I don't know if I should say his name, but remember he got they took the defendant took his tie and tried to strangle him. Yeah, I, I, I very, very rarely decline a case. But I was asked to represent a defendant who had just stabbed his lawyer. And I just decided that perhaps that might be a bridge too far for me. You know, again, at the time I had young children and I felt that um, it would possibly not be responsible for me to do that. At this point, can we switch gears to talk about Commonwealth versus Rogers Jordan? It was a murder case that you and I worked on together. We did. We did. That was Judge Christopher Muse. It certainly was. Well, he re- it was like he retired, I think, in... 18. And I think that was at the end of 17, October, November. It was kind of a short case as murders goes, like 10 days long. I remember it was a self-defense case. Can you tell what happened? Sure. It was a a very unusual and interesting case. Um, My client was um, retired, very obese, um, in poor medical condition, um, and he lived on the bottom floor of a two-family home owned by his sister. He had, he was really so ill in a way that he had trouble taking care of himself. So he hired a woman to rent one of the bedrooms and in exchange for room and board, um, she did housekeeping and cooking and cleaning, et cetera. And the woman was um, involved with uh, somebody who was physically and emotionally abusing her and she ended up separating and ended up hiding the fact that she was living with my living at my client's house. And so the the decedent found out and began this campaign of threatening her and my client. Can I just um, interject here? The decedent sure. means the dead person. The, de- the dead person. The, the person the, that ended up dead. Right. Um, Just to recap, just so he was in a romantic relationship with this woman that moved in to help the infirmed man. Thank exactly. Exactly. So So, um, on the day that he found out where his ex-girlfriend, she was really an ex-girlfriend at that point, had gone, he began a campaign via phone calls and text messages to both her and my client, threatening basically to kill both of them. If, you know, if he wouldn't, my client wouldn't speak with the, 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 the deceased in this case, the, you know, we'll, we'll call him a victim since he died. Um, Although, you know, really in a sense by his own hand, he came to my client's house repeatedly over the course of the day, um, locked and loaded, (laughs) ready to do damage. And my client just didn't engage. And at some point my client decided to go, to the courthouse, a local courthouse, to get a restraining order. And the the decedent, the victim, was lying in wait on, on a side street, saw my client crossing the street, left his car running, ran down, and they had a fight in the street. Um, and my client 
testified and told the jury that um, he had a gun, that my client wrestled the gun away from him. He tried to lunge at my client to get the gun back and my client shot him. And when the police arrived, um, the gun was gone because my client tossed the gun um, and went back into his house, in the back of his house. Um, and the police found the decedent, the victim, um, bleeding. I think he was, at that point, he was still alive. And he had an enormous knife tucked in his pants. And that was the case. So it was essentially a self-defense case. Um, and the jury acquitted him of the murder, but convicted him of the possession of the firearm because he had actually taken the firearm and disposed of it. You know, I was looking at my notes. I I do remember the case, but I did not transcribe it because as we call them, the NGs, not guilty, but he did get clip. He get, you know, he got a conviction on the firearm. I don't understand why you didn't appeal that conviction. My client wasn't interested in me appealing the conviction on the firearm. Um, and I don't, and, and by the and essentially he had been in custody um, for a lengthy period of time pre-trial. I think he received maximum sentence that he could have on, on a house sentence, which was two and a half years. Um, and I think he was almost to the end of, he only served a couple of months more. So I think at that point, I don't think he was engaged in doing that. So his time, had he gotten prison time or house of correction time, it would have been satisfied because he was detained all those months prior to being tried for murder. Right. Right. He, right. Any defendant who's held pretrial, if they're convicted or even if they end up pleading guilty, they're given credit towards the time that they've already been held. Yeah, we always hear that when they announce sentences in open court, they'll say you you have 563 days credit or you have 793 days credit. Yeah, Correct. but when he when when you heard the NG, though, on that, what was the reaction? Do you recall? He should be doing your laundry like every week for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, he was very emotional about it, obviously. Um, Judge Muse had was um, entertaining a group of judges from another country. I can't remember which country it was. It was I remember uh, when he was doing that, yeah. But I think it might have been that reciprocal program where Judge yeah. uh, Mayhe went. Yeah, it was like Croatia or yes, some, yes, some that's program. So they were very, and because they were, they only have bench trials, that is trials with a judge. Yeah. And they were interested in exploring, you know, the facets of a jury trial and whether or not to deploy that in their home country. Essentially, they the, the, the judges asked for the opportunity to do a, a Q&A with us, you know, myself and the prosecutor, just to talk about our, you know, the process and, you know, many of the questions you're asking me right now. Um, and they were absolutely fascinated. And they were asking these questions while the jury was deliberating. So, you know, there was this uh, sort of a, a cloud over all of us as to, you know, what the what the end result was. And then they left before the, I think it took a couple of days for the jury to deliberate. I'm assuming that, that Judge Muse conveyed what the verdict was, but I could tell that they were all very interested. Conversely, the Commonwealth and I, the prosecutor, were trying to read into the tea leaves of their questions to us as to <laughs> if they had been the jury, what were they thinking based upon the evidence and of course the closing arguments. So I hope they were satisfied with that information. Um, but it was just a very interesting experience. 
I'm fascinated how everyone else is fascinated at our system. And, you know, a few years ago, I went to this hotel in Munich. And lo and behold, I look. And what's like one building away but like a superior court? I don't speak a lick of German, but I'm going in. I have to see this. It, it ended up, I somehow got somebody that had a little English. And there was like a tribunal of judges. And there's no juries there. And I'm like, what? It was just so odd to me. But you know what I take away from this? This is going to just show like my... They had in the lunchroom wine and people were taking glasses of wine at lunch break i thought that was the coolest thing you would never see that where we are (laughs) we would be such a happier bunch if we could do that for sure we get a lot more cases resolved that's what i took away from it the alcohol i was like yay this is awesome you know the europeans always do it so much better than we do for sure (laughs) i guess that's why we go there whenever we can i don't know if we'll ever get there again the way things are going but right one of these old days Another common thing that lay people will say, they'll say, how does it take two years to get to trial? Now, you and I both know, how many times do we meet? Like, say the trial goes forward. You must come in a half dozen times, maybe more, for motions to suppress and all kinds of things. There are lots of um, rulings that have to be made about whether or not a piece of evidence, for example, is admissible at trial. So for example, um, if say you were walking down the street and without any legitimate reason, that is no legal reason, um, the police stopped you and they searched you and they found a gun. Though well, that's under certain circumstances, that would be unconstitutional unless there was some exception. And so typically what I would need to do is I would need to prepare for what's called a motion to suppress evidence, evidence that was obtained um, without a warrant, for example, um, and that might have been unlawful. And if that evidence is um, excluded or suppressed because a judge determines that it was not obtained lawfully, that changes the whole character of the trial going forward. Sometimes the prosecutor can't proceed with the case at all because the critical piece of evidence is going to be um, excluded. And so sometimes it affects part of the case. Um, And there are lots of different legal proceedings that determine ultimately how the trial is going to proceed. And that takes time. Um, And sometimes it's dependent upon other evidence or other information that has to be obtained. So for example, if I'm looking for a witness's records, medical records or mental health records, um, then we have to have an argument over that. And then the victims, the, the witnesses can come in and present their own argument. And so all these things can take quite a long time. And the cases are kicked over from month to month. Sometimes something happens and we have a hearing scheduled and we can't do it. A witness who is going to be at the hearing is unavailable. So that's why cases, unfortunately, take longer than the one year that is anticipated for these major felonies to be tried. Now, can I ask you just a wrap-up question? Sure. From your vantage point, there you are at the defense table, and I'm looking at you and you're looking at me. What is your view of the court reporter? And the fact that they canned us and replaced us with those dreadful machines, I mean, straight up, what are you thinking? Well, I, I think that you will not find a single defense attorney who was happy with the decision um, about basically um, getting rid of the court reporters in, you know, in court. And I think the prosecutors all feel the same way. So there was unanimous support to maintain that system. And it was unfortunately one of the more tragic decisions that the trial court administration made. Um, But I will tell you this, that 
the, my favorite people in the courtroom are in no particular order, the court reporter, the court officers and the clerks, because I get such valuable information from them. I mean, you know, they're people too. They sit and they listen and they hear the evidence and they hear, they, they have a different view from me and their feedback to me is invaluable um, and insightful. And so I, and frankly, there's no reason why I shouldn't maintain relationships with those people. Um, you know, they're wonderful people. They make my life so much easier. So yes, that was a fabulous question, Diane. It was the saddest day of my life to see everybody go. Aviva, I just know that like, we're kind of like a family. I call it like the five families. You know, you got the court, you got the probation. We're, all, we're like the five families. I don't know how many of you guys, I'd say maybe there's like 150 of you that come in regularly, defense lawyers. We know all about like your families, where you want a vacation, you know about us. There's so much hurry up and wait in the court where we just sit and we all get to know each other so well. And we, it, you really miss that camaraderie. I know, that's how I got that tip from you about the stockings. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I'm, I'm sure I came up to you and said, ugh, I have a yet another run in my stockings. I'm sure this is how it happened. And you said, what? You're wearing those? These are the best. They last forever. This will never happen again. You know, the people that we sit with and like tell jokes, all of a sudden you look and they're a judge. They're in a black robe, like Michael Doolin. Love him. Uh, too. Now he's a judge. Welcome so to my world. I'm basically going before all these judges now and they all have to tell the prosecutor that we used to practice together. And I'm like, yeah. there won't be any judges anymore for me to go before because I know them all. <laughs> That's right. Would you ever want to be a judge? No, I actually have been, you know, sort of given the, basically there's some subtle inquiry because about applying because there aren't that many female judges or at least back in the day when I think, you know, I would have done it. But I, I just never had an interest in doing it. Up on the walls in the administrative office, there are two long hallways and on either side, there are framed photos of every superior court judge that ever sat, ever presided on the superior court bench. And as you go by the year, they're all men, like in the 30s, 40s, the 50s. Then you start seeing late 60s, like maybe one female pitcher. And then, you you know, fast forward to now and it looks, you know, it's a lot more equal. But it, I think it's really interesting how they were all men for so long. Well, I mean, the the criminal defense bar is still highly skewed towards men. We have much more male judges than we do female judges. So it unfortunately hasn't really changed. Can I just tell you one thing and then we'll go? I could go on forever with you. It's so much fun. But I know that one clerk told me she works there since she was like 16 and a half till she retired. You know what she said to me? She said, you know, Diane, there's still prejudice. I said, why? She said, when I bring in papers that a lawyer will bring into the courtroom and they'll bring them into the judge's lobby, a lot of the judges will just turn it to see where the firm is like they're snobs like they they look and see which firm it is and then they'll say did they go to suffolk did they go to harvard law i mean it's still there yeah it sure is it'll take a long time before we move away from that unfortunately aviva i've had a tremendous time speaking with you love love loved it i miss you to death likewise i really miss you this was such a pleasure i had so much fun thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast it's, oh. it's been delightful 
Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed. (laughs) 